Good morning and welcome to Grace Church of the Bay Area. For those of you who are visiting or new or with us, this is the fifth Sunday of October. And though we believe in expository preaching, and we have been doing a study verse by verse through 1 Corinthians and have found ourselves in the middle of a series on spiritual gifts and service, whenever there are five Sundays in any given calendar month, which is three or four times a year, and we've been doing this since the church began 10 years ago, uh, I take some time to answer some of your questions, questions that you have submitted beforehand. And um, we believe, I believe, that expository preaching is uh, the most effective way of preaching because you catch every single word, every single verse. And the idea behind it simply is that if God has said it, we better make sure we get it right. However, because expository preaching often will take uh, a year or more, depending on the length, to go through a single book or an epistle, um, it may not cover some of the questions that you may have, either theologically or practically. And so we do this every time there are five Sundays in a month and answer any questions that you have. We got a few questions this week, and some are uh, very practical. A few of them, almost half of them, have to do with our current series on spiritual gifts. So let's jump right in. The first question is, can my dead Buddhist father, mother, and brother go to heaven from me praying for them? This is a common belief uh, among many world religions, false religions, that when somebody dies, they go to a place, a sort of holding place, or even uh, a place where they are being condemned but that may or may not be temporary depending on how their relatives or friends or even uh, priests or monks are um, giving or praying on their behalf. And depending on the religion, if there is enough, then that person, perhaps even unbeknownst to them what is going on, will be ushered into heaven or paradise or nirvana or whatever uh, version of heaven that religion has. Many religions have simply what we have, what the Bible teaches, heaven and hell. There's two places to go. Others have holding places. Others have levels of hell, degrees of heaven. Um, Of course, this is most commonly, uh, at least in The Western world found in Catholicism with purgatory, kind of a holding place where there is still a second chance after death. Um, And as this question uh, indicates, it's a very common belief in Buddhism and many other religions as well. Nowhere in the Bible are we told that there is an opportunity uh, after death, a second chance. Nowhere are we commanded to pray for the dead that they might, be, uh, they might go to heaven. The key for us is the reality that heaven is, if you could say, a byproduct, a secondary blessing of being saved. The primary being that we have a right relationship with God. We usually equate it with heaven. That's part of it. That's just icing on the cake. The fact that we get to have a right relationship with God is the, really the momentous foundation of 
the gospel and salvation. Part of that is being part of the church, blessings, hope, heaven, things like that. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And so in understanding, as you turn there, Hebrews 9, 27, understanding that salvation is when we turn to Jesus Christ, when we repent of our sins, when we accept Him as Lord and Savior, um, that happens when we are alive, when we are on earth, when we are in these physical, earthly, temporal bodies, not in another world, not in another uh, eternity or place like that. That is when we have the opportunity uh, to turn to Christ and be saved and have that re- right relationship uh, with the Lord. And all of that is what leads someone when they die or when Christ comes again to go to heaven forever. If that doesn't happen, the Bible teaches they go to hell, and that is forever. There is no second chance afterwards. So no matter what we do in praying, um, it will not change anything. Their eternity has been set. And Hebrews 9, verse 27 says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So it's very clear that we die and then judgment. There's no changing of mind. Unfortunately, this has been uh, used and probably created by these religions as a way to provide hope for the hopeless, for uh, increasing temple or church attendance, as well as increasing giving. The indulgences would have been famous. Have you ever been to Rome and visited the incredible St. Peter's Church? where the Pope speaks in the courtyard, I believe, every Sunday. It is incredible. It's probably priceless. There's no one who could probably afford to build something like that today. That was paid for by the selling of indulgences. That is, in part, what uh, uh, sparked uh, the Reformation, which we celebrate today. So uh, this was a problem because they said, well, you... If you buy these indulgences, if you pay, then your relatives who are in purgatory or who are in hell who are suffering right now, they can spring out of uh, hell and go to heaven. And that's just nowhere in the Bible. We could say that that's not fair. But it is fair, first of all, because we don't define what is fair. Judging sin is is fair. Judging crimes is fair. Punishing crime is fair. But during this life, we have more than a second chance. Third, fourth, fifth. Some of you are here as believers today because you took your 20th chance after rejecting and walking away for so long. And so during the time on earth, we have many opportunities. Um, In Luke 16, we read of that interesting situation with the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the rich man? Uh, goes to eternal damnation and says, can I at least go back and warn people? Can I go back and warn people that this is real? They need to turn to the Messiah, turn to the Lord. Well, if he was able to communicate and he was able to think that way, why didn't he just repent himself? Now, there's, it's a very unique story, very unique situation. There's a lot there. But for our context there was no repentance after salvation um, for that person. And that's an indication, too, 
that it's too late, so to speak. Um, this is a great reminder for us to share the gospel now, to be praying for the salvation of people now, uh, rather when it's too late. Okay? Question number two. If I'm not one of the chosen ones, what's the point of going to church on Sundays? If you are not a believer right now, and you're here at this church or you're attending church, there is no way you can know whether or not you're one of the elect. There's just no way to know. You wouldn't know that. As a believer, we know, right? We're saved. We were clearly chosen by God beforehand. This speaks, by the way, of the doctrine of election, which is very clear in chapter 8 of Romans, verses 29 through 30, where there's this un unbreakable chain, which is a sequence of events that starts before the beginning of time with the doctrine of election, which is God choosing us before time. I'll just read that for you, Romans eight twenty nine through 30. It's elsewhere in Scripture. This is a very clear one and gives us hope for the future as well. It says, For those whom He foreknew, speaking of God, whom God foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So that calling and justification, it comes later in that sequence of events. But that's where salvation occurs. It's a, it's a coming of, to fruition of election beforehand. I've known people, you know, some of you have known people who have gotten saved in their late 70s, their 80s. Okay? And so... All that to say is, even as an adult, even as a teenager, someone in their 40s, 50s, you can't know, I can't know whether you are elect or not, okay? Um, so what's the point, though? If you are currently an unbeliever, what's the point of going to church? Well, if you are a child, to obey your parents, um, to learn more about your Creator, even if you are not elect, that doesn't negate the fact that Christ is Lord. It doesn't negate the fact that Christ is your creator and created you. And so you can go to church to learn more about your creator. There are uh, instances in the New Testament of talking about where unbelievers were blessed because they were part of the church, but then left showing that they were not believers. And so there are social benefits of being with moral people, people who will uh, help you, uh, you know, whether you're looking for social activity, things like that. But all that to say, the reality is, as an unbeliever, what we teach and what we believe is foolishness to you. Uh, is there any point for an unbeliever to be here? Yes, to hear the gospel. That's the biggest point. That's the most important thing but it will ultimately be foolishness to them. Church Sunday mornings is a gathering of believers. It's family time. This is not evangelism time. This is not for unbelievers. Unbelievers are welcome to come, more than welcome to come. I think there's no better place for a non-Christian to be on a Sunday morning than at church. But this is not for them. Right? They, this, they don't understand what we're preaching. The, for the 90% of what I preach will be impossible for them because they don't have the Holy Spirit. 
Um, this is family time, but unbelievers are welcome to visit family time, just as when you used to bring your boyfriend and girlfriend to Thanksgiving dinner. They're, they don't get the stories. They're not part of the family. You may have ended up not even marrying that individual. And so they were a visitor. They could still enjoy it, but, and they're welcome to come, but it wasn't for them. You didn't start having Thanksgiving dinner because, you know, so-and-so's girlfriend's coming to town, right? It's their joining. And so uh, there are benefits for the unbeliever, uh, but ultimately Sunday morning worship is for Christians. But here's the most important thing, and this will kind of bleed into the next question. The Bible never tells us to be concerned whether someone is elect or not in terms of salvation and worship. We worship and because we are elect. We thank God because of that. But on a practical level, we are never told to be concerned about that. We're not trying to figure out if you're elect or not. We just share the gospel with everyone we can. What we are told is to turn from our sins and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So what does that mean? If you think you are not chosen, you don't know if you are chosen or elect or not, and so I would tell you, turn to Him. Turn to Him. Romans 3 tells us that nobody turns to God or seeks God on their own initiative. Okay? We, we may have been curious about it, and then we started reading, we started asking questions, and then we got saved. But you understand that that was because the Holy Spirit was working in your heart. On our own, in our own minds and hearts, we reject, we turn away, we flee. So this also means, practically speaking, that nobody who genuinely is seeking the Lord has been turned away because they're not elect. Does that make sense? Nobody genuinely wants to repent and turn to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and Jesus looks in the book and says, I know you really want it, but sorry, you're not in the book of life. You're not the elect. So on a practical level, if you turn to the Lord Jesus truly in your heart, that doesn't make you elect, change what God has done, but that shows that you are elect. And that's what we should be concerned about, right? So the idea of being turned away because you're not chosen, that's foreign to the Scriptures. And so uh, there is a difference between what we understand is reality in the mind and outworkings of God's plan in His infinite wisdom and eternal logic and what we are called to do and what we can and do understand. And sometimes in human logic, those things don't make sense because we want to compare it to other things that are rational in this earth, but they don't make sense. They don't fit together. But we accept them um, in, as Scripture. So we accept the doctrine of election and we accept the responsibility of man for his sin and the responsibility of man to turn to him. Okay? Because the Bible teaches all of those things. Number three, if God saves us for his glory, why doesn't he choose to save everyone? That way more people will glorify him. This goes back to what I was just uh, saying in the last question. 
The first thing I want to point out is in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, it tells us that God desires everyone to be saved. That is His desire. He is not some evil God that we watch movies about or that we learned about in, 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 uh, you know, about the Greek gods and things like that. Um, that just is evil and doing things irrationally and on a whim. He desires all men to be saved. And so this brings up a theological reality of desire versus decree. His desire cannot invalidate who he is and what he has decreed. Jesus wept because these people... The, his, his, his chosen people, Israel, were rejecting him. He wept over that. He wasn't some hard-hearted, cold-hearted person who just said, well, this is what I decreed. Too bad for you. He genuinely wept understanding in his mind, unlike what we can fathom or comprehend, his decrees and the doctrine of election, and yet he wept. So we know that God desires all men to be saved, and we know that the Bible teaches election, and we know what the Bible teaches about the character of God. And again, man is responsible to turn to Christ for salvation. And if they don't, they are responsible for their rejection of Him and for their sin. I am not teaching Arminianism. I'm teaching what the Bible teaches. This is a mystery to us, but it is not a mystery in the mind of God. It is a complex riddle that is completely logical and solved in the mind of God. But when we take all of these teachings together, God will not force someone to be saved. Even with the doctrine of election, even with understanding irresistible grace, no one is forced to be saved in the sense that he didn't have some sort of miraculous knee, get on your neck and say, I'm going to snap your neck unless you turn to Jesus Christ. We know in world history the opposite has been true where man has threatened death and killed people to get them to reject Christ. But he doesn't force people to be saved uh, in, with some sort of violence or something like that. And we, we've seen even in the, in the history of Israel that wouldn't work anyways. Right? He said, I am going to do these things because you have disobeyed, so you will repent. And they still didn't repent. And so we know that the, that wouldn't work anyway. Romans 1 says that he gives people over to what they desire, which is their sinfulness. He said these people did not repent. They choose these wicked ways. And so God said, I'm going to give you what you want. You may not understand the eternal consequences of this, but I'm going to give you what you want you want. And so, not everyone has that desire to come to a saving knowledge of Him, and so they're given over to what they desire. Now, we must fully also recognize the character of God. He is love, yes. He is gracious, yes. But He is also justice, righteousness, and wrath. Nothing has changed from those Old Testament stories where He decreed the death of men, women, pregnant women, and their children for their disobedience. He is still that God of wrath and justice and biblical fairness. 
Okay, we are in a time of patience and grace and where we don't see those things, but as we read in Revelation especially, those times will come to an end and where Jesus is not going to come with a, a, a white robe saying, please turn to me, turn to me. He comes with a robe soaked in blood and this is the blood of people he is killing who have rejected him, who have turned from him and there is a sword in his hand. He is still a God of war as well as a God of love and grace. And so God is glorified through the outworking of all of his character, even the ones we don't like. And whether it's the punishment of sin or the salvation of sinners, he is glorified. He was glorified in the murdering of his own son because it punished and paid for sin. He is glorified in sending people to eternal condemnation because it highlights his righteousness and his justice. More so, it highlights his grace in those who are saved. And Romans 9 talks about this. Let's turn there. Romans 9, 22 and 23. Romans 9, 22 and 23 says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. He predestined vessels of wrath to glorify himself through the display of his grace and mercy on the vessels of mercy, that is, the believers, okay? And so that probably speaks mo most directly to the question, why doesn't he save everyone to glorify himself? Well, actually, to glorify himself, to glorify himself through his mercy on those who are saved. Now, again, you know, when we think about the world's view of fairness, that is a, a hard pill to swallow, Right? It's the same answer to the question, why did God allow sin in the Garden of Eden? Ultimately, to glorify himself, and you can jump forward to what we just read, so that he can display his mercy and his grace. And so all of those, he can't contradict uh, his decree. He cannot contradict his, um, his character and to glorify himself. Okay? I got a lot of questions, and I believe the next two or three are on spiritual gifts from our study in Romans 12, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12. The first one is, how does one's personality and personality tests relate or not to their spiritual gift or gifts? Now, I want to make clear before I answer these questions on spiritual gifts, and I'm so thankful for these questions because it shows that the wheels are turning. You guys desire to use your spiritual gift. Um, you're, you're listening and responding to the messages. And we can only go so far as what the Scriptures tell us. I have opinions, and I have uh, I thinks statements, but that's just based on my experience with a limited group of believers, uh, which, you know, those I've known well probably in my time of ministry is about a couple thousand. But that's very limited compared to the number of Christians and 
you know, how God has worked throughout the ages. So the Bible does not tell us anything about personality in relation to spiritual gifts. It doesn't really talk about personality in general, um, at least not how we define it in society today. The Bible does not tell us how many spiritual gifts we are given or how many each person can have. It does not even tell us how to determine our spiritual gift. It doesn't tell us if our gift can change over time, which is one of the following questions. It does tell us, as those of you who've been around have heard many times, it does, the Bible does tell us that every believer has a spiritual gift. Every believer is called and required to use it. And every believer is placed in a way that their spiritual gift can be used for the common good. And as we saw last week, and we will see very uh, poignantly next week, is that love is to uh, bolster or be the motivation for any sort of service. So all that to say for this question regarding personality and personality tests, there's nothing in Scripture that talks about spiritual gifts in relation to personality personality. Um, if you think of this broadly, it does help in your service to know someone's personality. Right? That is, I believe, part of serving well and loving. This doesn't really talk about what's being asked here, but I think knowing your own personality, and so if there, you have a personality that tends to keep you from certain uh, acts of obedience, since, for example, if you're more shy and it affects your uh, evangelism, then it's good to know your personality so you can work on your, uh, I don't want to call that a weakness unless it delves into spiritual, but your hesitancy to evangelize is a weakness. You can work on that, right? If you're very outgoing and tend to put your foot in your mouth and say things and violations of Ephesians 4.29 and, and say things that are discouraging or unedifying, and though in your group of outgoing friends they like it, but in other groups they don't, that's good to know. It's good to know uh, the personalities of people you're serving so you know that if during hard times if they want you to say something or if they want you to leave them alone or if they want you to just sit there and cry with them, right? And so that's help, knowing personality is helpful in service. Um, this could involve spiritual giftedness, sure, your personality. God can use anything. But I think we need to be careful that we don't lock ourselves down into a specific area of service because we think that's what our personality is. On the, f the other end of the spectrum, and I've seen Christians do this, I've seen missionaries do this, uh, like express this, that they excuse sin and say that's just their personality, that's just my personality. Well, that's not okay, right? Change the sin part of it. Um, so, you know, we have to have a right understanding of anything in our lives, including your personality. One thing I would encourage you to be careful of, especially when it comes to um, personality tests and personality traits, um, there's that, that really popular one, what is the Briggs-Meyer, is that what it's called? Um, and it, it locks you into a certain thing, and, and, and different Christians, well-meaning Christians, have taken... Um, the spiritual gifts from the scriptures and attach it to those personality tests. And as you answer certain questions, they tell you, well, this must be your spiritual gift. I want you to be careful of saying, well, this test says this is who I am, and so this is who I am. I'm locked into it. 
And so there's no way because I'm an introvert that I'll ever be able to teach. That may not be true. Okay? Or I'm just really, you know, I have a lot of energy. That's my personality. And so I'm never going to be uh, really good in a, in a ministry that's, that's encouragement or comforting. Right? They, they've banned me from the hospital because I'm so, so loud. Right? I, I, that's just, and that may not be the case. Right? We've got to be careful we don't limit uh, our service or make an excuse for lack of service because that's just not my personality. Uh, the one example I could give you, a couple examples, but one example that's very clear in Scripture is Second Corinthians 11.6. The Apostle Paul himself declared himself as unskilled in speech. And yet we know that his spiritual gift, or one of them, was teaching, which was involved in apostleship. And this was him um, piggybacking on accusations of other people who said he was cowardly, probably in relation to when he fled the city. He was cowardly. He he doesn't have a very good presence. And so according to that culture, which even more than today, really valued with with the philosophers, the famous philosophers and teachers, that, you know, having a good presence and confidence and, and oratory skills, um, they really valued those, and they said, how can Paul be the leader of this religion when he doesn't have any of those, right? And so that's just uh, evidence right there that there's someone very significant whose personality and spiritual giftedness went against what his own declaration of his personality was. You look at Jesus Christ, who was humble, Right, who was meek in the good sense of the word, and yet with passion for his father's house, made up a whip of cords and drove out these money changers who were deeply connected to a very powerful system within the temple. These were significant people tied to even more powerful people, and yet he did that, right? And so... What was his personality? We're not given a lot. He rebuked those who had to be rebuked, and he was gentle with those whom, with whom he needed to be gentle. And so um, can God use your personality? Sure, but I don't think it really has necessarily much to do with your spiritual gift. It could, uh, but it doesn't have to. Number five, considering each church differs in needs and composition, would it then be the case that when a person joins a church... I would say a new church, a different church, God can change their gifting according to the particular church's need? Uh, this is a great question because, as I said in my sermon at what the First uh, Corinthians 12, uh, Paul seems to be saying is that each local body has everything that they need. And so what if that body doesn't change, it doesn't grow much, um, and it's the same people, but there's new needs to certain people's spiritual gifts change or some, you know, in today's day when you would go to a different church, back then they wouldn't really do that because you, you stay put um, wherever you live or grew up. Well, they don't need my, what I, where I used to serve my old church, but I know I need to be serving for the common good of this body. Does that mean my spiritual gift changes? I'm going to answer it by this. When you look at the three lists of spiritual gifts, we saw one recently, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, then you have uh, um, Romans 12 as uh, well as Ephesians. When you look at all of the gifts together, 
what you see are not very specific in what that spiritual gift entails. And so what you see in these spiritual gifts are really broader types of gifts. And so your particular ministry and service will most likely fall under a broader category or type of spiritual gift. And someone may have the same spiritual gift that's manifested in a totally different way in the local church. Let me try to explain this very practically. In most modern churches, especially in the Western world, almost every church has a worship leader, which is, uh, frankly, uh, a very unfortunate name because the whole service is worship. But you understand, it's a music leader. And most churches have ushers. There is no spiritual gift of ushering. There is no spiritual gift of worship leading. There's no spiritual gift of music. There is a spiritual gift of encouragement. There is a spiritual gift of helps. There is a spiritual gift of teaching and administrations, which could be the spiritual gift of someone who's leading worship. See where I'm going with this? There is not even a spiritual gift of eldership. But obviously elders will be spiritually gifted in, for example, teaching and administrations, okay? And so how that plays out, your spiritual giftedness, may not be what your title is. And you can function in a role, by the way, even if it's not your spiritual gift, okay? So um, can your spiritual gift change? The Bible doesn't address that. But these principles of what spiritual gifts are, uh, I don't believe they really need to, okay? So if someone is a worship leader in one church and then they go to another church and maybe all of their worship leaders also happen to be on professional bands and say, sorry, uh, we don't really have a place for you here. Well, that doesn't mean that they're not using their spiritual gift because their spiritual gift, worship leading is not a spiritual gift. They can use what is their spiritual gift in other areas in the church. Okay? I want to give a warning here. And as we continue looking at spiritual gifts through 1 Corinthians, um, we tend to, I think especially during a study like this, we tend to focus so much on our spiritual gift that we neglect the more important aspect of loving, which we'll see in 1 Corinthians 13, and serving, okay? Uh, How we ended chapter 12 also. So let me put it this way. If you are serving in the church and you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, or you think you know what it is, but it's not how you're serving right now, in other words, your ministry does not involve your spiritual gift, you are not in sin. You are honoring God. You are worshiping God. But if you are not serving because you're still trying to figure out what your spiritual gift is, you are in sin because you're not serving. So yes, we need to be serving and using our spiritual gift, but the most important part is we need to be serving. And the Lord will make it so that your spiritual gift becomes clear to you and that your spiritual gift will be used. And maybe it's not so much about your knowing what your spiritual gift is, it's just a lack of opportunities or the leadership recognizing it, and we need to trust that the Lord will let your friends and your 
fellow church members and the church leadership recognize that eventually and say, hey, you need to be here. And a lot of times that's how people figure out their spiritual gift. I wouldn't say most, but there are many pastors who didn't even think about pastoral ministry until someone heard them lead a Bible study or something and they say, hey, have you ever considered uh, doing more of this? And they let them do more of it and then like, hey, brother, I think your spiritual gift may be teaching. You need to consider that and then off they go. Right? And so, um, bottom line, though, we need to be serving. Number six, a question that came up in our small group is how is it that the sign gifts worked instantaneously and completely, whereas the non-sign gifts do not seem to deliver such characteristic effects? For example, the sign gifts also being the miraculous gifts, such as the gifts of healing. Right? They healed instantaneously and perfectly. No limp, no... Uh, you didn't go from blind to being able to see, you know, 2050, but 2020, that kind of thing. Um, the answer is, frankly, in the, the title. They were miraculous. Um, they were miraculous gifts. Now, if you want to break that down even more practically, when you look at what the gift was or what uh, the end result was to be, it has to be complete or not. There is no sub-miracle. It's either a miracle or it's not a miracle. You're either healed or you're not. There are no degrees in healing. I know in modern medicine there are. But what we're talking about in healing, there are no degrees of healing. Okay? There is an objective standard. This guy can see or he can't see. He can walk or he can't walk. He's been bleeding for 20 years and it stopped or it didn't, okay? The person's alive or they're not alive, um, whatever. The, the water turned to wine or it didn't turn into wine. It wasn't just grapey water, okay? It's wine. There is an objective standard of what wine is. That wouldn't be the case in things like teaching or helping or giving liberally. Because even then, there's a subjective standard of what uh, those things are. There are degrees of helpfulness, and each person is helped in a different way. And even if two people have the same uh, need, how you help them may be completely different. What is giving with liberality? Is there a percentage? Is it giving all? What does that mean? And, and that changes based on, frankly, how much money you have. The cost of living. Is the cost of living 50000 a year or is it $50 a year? So all of those things take place um, within those, right? And so, uh, and it's not just about skill or giftedness. It's about the audience as well. For example, I have the gift of teaching. But you wouldn't want me to say that uh, as a 23-year-old individual and say, I have the gift of teaching, and so I don't need to go to seminary. Or as a 46-year-old individual, say, I have the gift of teaching, but I'm not going to study. So I'm not going to study. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to get to know you guys because you guys change, right? So my illustrations will change. There is work I need to put into that to hone my skill of teaching. And you guys have seen that. 
this guy's clearly a gifted teacher, but he's not as good as the other pastor. Okay? And so a lot of that has to do with work. There is no objective standard as there is with being healed or being raised from the dead. And we even see in 1 Timothy 4.14 where Paul says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you. And then he says, pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Okay? So Paul recognized the spiritual gifting that Timothy had, and yet he said, you got to work on this. Okay? Your leadership and your teaching. All right. Uh, final question, question seven. I'm still hearing occasionally from speakers, not necessarily pastors, on random radio shows that report that they got into their ministries because they felt that God spoke to them via dreams. I kind of know the answer, but would appreciate your clarification. Would you consider this mode a valid, quote, call to a ministry? And how would you respond to them? Um, I wanted to follow up with this individual, so I'm going to do that right now and just vaguely look at the audience. Are these people, I'm just curious, I don't think it would really change what I would say, uh, at least the bulk of it. Are these people, do they tend to be big names, like famous people? with big, big audiences and shows. Okay. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, you hear that from time to time, um, especially people on TV, faith healers, things like that. So there are dreams in the Scriptures. God does huge dreams. You see them mostly in the Old Testament. They were verified, though, by an interpreter um, or by the objective fulfillment of that dream because it was prophetic. Right? For example, when Joseph dreamed that dream, his brothers and his dad really didn't like it, so he kept it to himself. But time ended up showing that the dream was true. It, it came true. Right? Daniel interpreted dreams. That came true. They were real. Uh, other dreams in the Old Testament, they were prophecies. They, were, they came true. And in fact, if you want to look at the Old Testament... If you look at the, the, the requirements for a prophet, if the prophecy didn't come true, what did they do? They killed the man. They were to be stoned to death. Okay? So if they were prophetic, they were also God's Word, which we have. They, that's why they're in the Word of God. Dreams in the Old Testament and in the New Testament were revelation. And we believe that God's revelation is complete. It is over. I've heard one person say that if you're getting a dream from God, you better read it, write it down because we all need to hear it because it's Scripture. It's revelation. We need to know it. The kind of dream that is spoken about here, and I know many people who um, even say, well, I had a dream that I was supposed to do this and I know it was from God. They are not verifiable. And you can see that even the content of the dream is very different. Right? Even in the question, I know this has more, um, this is a more important situation because you have people who have influence on other Christians saying that dreams are a, a good and uh, a good way to know that God, what God wants and that God is speaking to you, which can be dangerous. So you see the difference, right? In the Old Testament, dreams and visions were used by God to tell people what would happen. Today, 
they're telling people or people claim that they're telling them what they should pursue on their own, often for their own benefit. Okay? In the Old Testament, in the Scriptures, these dreams never told people to seek high positions. In fact, you have people, it wasn't a dream, but like Moses, he resisted. Okay? Abraham and his wife laughed. God said, I will make you a great person, a father of many nations, and they laughed. They doubted it. It didn't say go and seek this out. Try to have as many kids as possible. He's saying this is what's going to happen. So right there you see a very key difference between what people are claiming today and what is uh, in the Scriptures. These types of dreams are simply not verifiable because it's not what will happen, it's what should happen. Seek this, go out this, and if you do this, I will do this. No, that's, that's not how God works. And I would ask some questions. The scientists say we dream every night, whether you know it or not, whether you remember it or not. So that's a lot of dreams. Why do you think this particular dream was from God and was telling you to do something? And not the dream where you're like, oh, I was walking around the desert with nothing. You didn't seem to interpret that dream as sell everything and give to the poor. But I was in a farm and there were thousands of cows and they were all bowing down and saying amen. But you take that as, oh, I need to pursue this because I'm going to be rich and famous. And then I ate all the cows, so you all need to give me all your money. Right? Um, you know, we've all had the dream where we're falling, but someone interprets it as I need to buy a private jet so I can minister to people quicker and get places faster. I don't know if this is what their dreams are. But these dreams are objective. And you know that there are times where you have had uh, nightmares and you wake up and sure enough, that stomach ache you had when you went to bed is still there. There, is, there are physical repercussions and emotional say into your dreams simply on how you're feeling that day, how tired you are, what you just experienced. Right? I, I don't mean to be graphic, but uh, a lot of times people, uh, usually single guys, they say, I'm, I'm struggling with lust. And I've gotten a handle on it, but sometimes I have these dreams and it makes me stumble in that way. And I can't stop those dreams, so how do I deal with that? Well, Stop thinking about those things during the day and you'll stop having those dreams, right? I mean, if you're stressed out and you're thinking about things all the time, you're going to dream about those things because it's your mind rehearsing what's, what's been going on in the day. And so, not biblically, but even on, from a medical standpoint, a practical standpoint, it's safe to say if someone's been hoping and dreaming and seeing how they become famous, they're going to end up dreaming about that at some point. And who's to say? I mean, it just it, it is so subjective. You ever had that dream where you're, you kind of wake up and you're half awake, but you go back to sleep, but you know you're not in a deep sleep because you can really control that dream, right? 
the superhero dreams, it's just me, right? You see where I'm going with this. And so they're, 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 they're so subjective. And so it's dangerous to say, you know, I believe the, the Lord uh, wanted me to do this because of a dream. What about the 10,000 other dreams you've had in your lifetime? How do you interpret those, right? Uh, Freud has a lot to say about that, but we don't put any stock in that either, right? You dreamt this, you must be a homosexual, right? It's just not, right? If, if, you've, if you've dreamt that you're a dolphin swimming in the water, you're a homosexual, that's what the, 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 science, the people with degrees tell you this. I mean, it just, it's, you, you can't, how do you know? How do you know? Okay, so we need to be careful. All right. Well, great question, guys. Feel free to com, uh, continue submitting those. Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for just your continued goodness to us and the clarity of your word. Thank you for a family, a body of believers that is so interested in knowing more and excelling still more. Thank you that your, your word is clear and thank you that we have the freedom to, uh, to take the truth of your scripture and practice that in different ways in each of our lives. Continue to help us to excel still more for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.